Thank you very much for coming. I assume you can hear me. Good. And thank you very much to RBS for sponsoring this event, which gives us close to an hour in the company of the distinguished journalist, broadcaster, and author, Jonathan Dimbleby, who has already uh, carved his name in broadcasting history with such a fan of achievements that it would take far too much time to go through all of them. I mean, you remember uh, his interview with the Prince of Wales, his interview with Mikhail Gorbachev, his many documentaries, his books, any questions, of course, which is a weekly commitment, uh, uh, hosting the ITV's inquisitorial political show, and now his most recent enterprise, and I'm sure everybody here saw at least one episode of the television series uh, of which this book is the complementary volume, Russia, A Journey to the Heart, to the Heart of a Land and Its People. Enough from me. Please welcome Jonathan Dimbleby. Sheena, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to go plunge straight in, but just with a reminder to Sheena that after I've spoken for about 30 minutes, and on the assumption that you're still awake, um, I'm going to ask her to stop me, because otherwise, liberated from the torturous constraints of radio and television studios, it's terribly easy, particularly when you're talking about Russia and you've written a very long book about which you feel passionate, it's quite easy to talk on and on and on, as Margaret Thatcher used to say. Um, <laughs> I came to write this book as a result of an invitation to make a journey through Russia of some 10,000 miles from the BBC for television, which Sheena referred to. Um, I had some experience before of Russia during the Soviet period in the Cold War, when it was extremely uh, difficult to work effectively as a journalist in Moscow, which was virtually where I was constrained, particularly if you were dealing with international relations and people were very suspicious of you, some were hostile, um, you had minders all the time, and you could only film as you were instructed. And therefore, to find out anything at all beyond the official line or lies, um, you had to become subterranean, which meant, in my case, trying to deal with the Cyrillic alphabet as I went underground to meet someone who I'd arranged to meet at something like four or five stations away, and then we'd go and sit in some corner of Gorky Park. Um, I got it right once um, and met my, my quarry, as it were. Um, I didn't like Russia then. Um, I took the view in the Cold War that it was two uh, great powers who were not only mutually hostile, but each depended upon the other. And I was radically personally opposed to the nuclear arms race, uh, which bolstered their own self, uh, uh, their own ability to say to themselves, we are responding to a threat. I never actually believed, except in error, that those weapons would be used, however. Um, I had travelled, and I have travelled, in uh, many countries around the world as a, as a reporter, and I've never felt so daunted and came to this project uh, with that sense uh, that Russia is a really difficult place. The old uh, aphorism of Churchill's that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. 
um, was part of my sense of being daunted, but it was also a feeling that I'd sort of been brought up with almost, even though I was very critical of my, as it were, own side, that the Russians were adversaries and it would be a difficult task. Nonetheless, it was, it was an irresistible invitation, 10,000 miles through the largest country in the world. And Siberia alone, which is where the last part of the journey was to take place, is larger than the United States, including Alaska and the whole of Western Europe put together. So you can look at it on the map, but when you get there and start the journey, you realize just what you have bitten off. And very often in the journey, I thought it was more, as it were, than I could chew. Uh, in the introduction, I refer to the fact also, and I'm not going to refer to it now, but it, it, it filters its way through the book from time to time, that I was, had been through a series of rather, uh, and I debated long and hard whether to include this or not, that I'd been through a, 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 a very difficult personal time, a rather traumatic time, and that uh, Russia is a land of extremes, and uh, therefore it was quite the appropriate environment in which I kept from time to time to feel extreme uh, one way or another myself, and that goes through the journey. But I was daunted by, but exhilarated by the prospect my first adventure, and I'm going to read a few extracts from the book as I go. My first venture, which reminded me of how extreme Russia was, was on the way um, from a town called Kem in the region of Karelia across the White Sea to an island which, about which there is a big story, which I don't have uh, time now to talk about. It, was a, it is both the place that was the... Uh, if you like, the... the, 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 the the attempt to create the first gulag, or the first prison of the gulag system. It was the blueprint. Solzhenitsyn, the late Solzhenitsyn's book, Gulag Archipelago, starts with the archipelago of this island, Solov Key. But it's also very, very beautiful, and it's a very holy place. There's a monastery there which pilgrims go to. There was a boat to get across there, and the boat was overcrowded because the weather was getting worse and worse. And the small boats couldn't go, so the bigger boat went. And there were about 200 passengers on board a boat that, by my judgment, and I do quite a bit of sailing and that kind of thing, was fitted for perhaps 100, 120 people. And we got out of the harbour, and the sea began to get up. Once outside the harbour, those passengers who could find no space in the cabin had to remain on the open deck, when most of them tried to find shelter on the leeward side, away from the stinging spray whipped up by the wind and the sea. As a result, the ferry was listing to starboard as the mountainous seas rolled in on the port beam. After 45 minutes or so, I'm editing as I go, after 45 minutes or so, we were in open water, breasting short, steep, ugly seas. We pitched and rolled, sometimes to what seemed to be the very extreme of 45 degrees. The boat shuddered, stayed poised on that edge for an eternity, then rolled back to start the same process all over again, as if to torture us with the possibility that what we feared was inevitable. Some passengers clutched each other in alarm. Others were crossing themselves. Yet others, more resolute, started to sing what sounded in the roar of the wind like a Russian version of Abide With Me. <laughs> With the courage of real fear, I had images in my mind of those ferry disasters in third world countries where scores of people are drowned in avoidable accidents. I decided to confront the skipper. I slid and slithered to the upper deck with a translator with me um, and staggered across to the wheelhouse. Pulling open the door, more drowned rat than ancient mariner, I yelled over the wind and engine, I'm a sailor and this weather is getting worse. 
this boat is overloaded and you're putting our lives in danger. In retrospect, the words seem embarrassingly melodramatic, but I believe then, as I do now, that I was in fact telling the truth. At first, with that infuriating combination of indifference and contempt that I was starting to think was a genetic peculiarity of the Russian people, he affected not to hear me, but looked resolutely ahead at the confused and breaking seas. On my third exasperated effort, he simply said, I shall not turn back. Beside him, leaning against the wheelhouse door, was his emaciated ship's mate, sodden with alcohol, clutching onto a rail for support, his bloodshot eyes staring with benign vacancy into the middle distance. I reckoned, as I said just now, that there were more than 200 passengers on a boat designed for at most half that number. 200 souls and two crew, one of whom was a psychopath and the other a roaring drunk. I eyed the life rafts firmly secured to the deck. If we were to capsize, none of us would have any hope. It was and went on being an adventurous journey in one way or another. But I didn't just want to write the story of an adventure. I, I wanted to understand Russia. I, that meant un to get, I mean, to use two cliches, to get under the skin and behind the headlines, to look at Russia from the bottom up as well as from the top down, which would be my normal trade. Um, and I wanted to, therefore, understand more about the history of Russia and Russian culture. And therefore, it was, and it's partly why the book is so long, an ambitious project. Um, but I discovered things that I had no idea that existed as well, which made the journey particularly intriguing. I went through, uh, down through Karelia, as I said, I met a white witch. I went to, uh, in the most beautiful part of Karelia, which is uh, lakes and winding rivers, apparently in the middle of this remote n nowhere. It's between Murmansk, where I started the, 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 the trip, and, and Moscow, um, a huge area. Uh, these, these slow running uh, rivers, trees on either side, totally clear water, quite unlike the experience of Russia that I'd, that I'd ever had before. And I met this white witch, about which I write, but um, we'll leave that to your imagination, except that she had a go at my back with a knife. Anyone who saw that particular program may remember that uh, uh, anxious moment. The petroglyphs. I didn't know what a petroglyph was until I got to Russia and was told. Who knows in this audience what a petroglyph is? Yeah, you see, well, I'm glad I'm in the majority. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 on, on, it's rock designs, uh, prehistoric, I mean, 5,000 or so years ago. And they were completely beautiful in the setting, in the setting sun, which is the first, so far as anyone knows, is the first known uh, um, imprint of humanity on Russian soil. They are estimated to be about, five, there's a lot of controversy, at about 5,000 years old. I went on down to St. Petersburg, founded by Peter the Great, and discussed, what was the, one of the joys was to make sure that I read um, the Russian novels and poems and essays uh, in the place where they were written and which was the focus of the dramas. So I, I read Gogol in St. Petersburg, Gogol, whose I recommend his short stories, um, the father of the novel, his, his story, The Overcoat, which led Dostoevsky, who also wrote Crime and Punishment um, in and around uh, St. Petersburg, and who is 
the father, really, of the psychological novel, uh, described Gogol as the overcoat of the Russian uh, novel. Um, and of course, St. Petersburg, to move forward a bit, was the, the, the center of the most dramatic siege. Difficult to think of another siege, Troy perhaps, which maybe Stalingrad, but Stalingrad was different. The siege in 1941-1942, which lasted 900 days of the city by the Axis Nazi forces, where the city was virtually surrounded. And um, over a period of 900 days, until the early spring of 1942, one half the city's civilian population perished. 1.2 million people died in the city. Reminder to me, as I went on the journey, you cannot begin to understand Russia's present without understanding Russia's past. I came across some letters which I read in St. Petersburg. Uh, they're pitiable letters from the survivors that were intercepted by the, the NKVD, the secret police, the precursors of the KGB, and now the FSB. Um, and these letters, I'm just going to take a couple, three extracts. Our beloved Leningrad has turned into a heap of dirt and corpses. Trams have long ceased, since ceased to run. There is no light, no fuel, the water is frozen, the rubbish isn't cleared. And most important of all, we're tormented by hunger. Another, we've become a herd of hungry beasts. You walk along the streets and come across people swaying like drunks, collapsing and dying. We've become used to seeing such sights and pay no attention because today they are dying, but tomorrow it will be me. And the third, Leningrad has become a morgue. The streets have become avenues of the dead. In every house, the cellar is a dump for corpses. There are cavalcades of dead bodies lining the streets. I worked my way on down to Moscow, the heart of uh, what I regard as the kleptocracy that runs Russia. I don't want to, I'm going to summarize what I explore a lot in, in the book and touched on in the films. Summarize now my feeling, having looked quite closely and talked a great deal on the, on the journey and subsequently, and having read. I use the term kleptocracy because I think Russia, and I, uh, because I believe Russia is run by a gang, um, by a clan, a clique, uh, uh, which, to use that phrase uh, from Ted Ho Hughes's poem, Hawk Roosting, the hawk roosts and says, and I'm going to get it wrong, and someone will point it out to me, I'm going to keep things like this looking down on the country that they control. The media is muzzled. It's the most dangerous country in the world for a national journalist, a Russian journalist, um, to work, except for two other countries, Iraq and Burma. The judiciary is suborned to the executive. There is no independent judiciary. The judiciary uh, operates as the servant of the Kremlin. Um, the parliament, the Duma, has no democracy. It is a rubber stamp. Even the opposition parties have never uh, voted against the united Russia, which is Putin's creation of a party, um, ex except on the, excuse me, the most minor matters. So the power rests in what is, I think, objectively described as a crypto-fascist state. And I wish more often that people outside would recognize just how deep the aut autocratic rule has 
uh, riven into the soul of Russia um, with the consent of the great majority of the people. And that's what is interesting, that the great majority, there are opponents who, if they dare, speak out. And if they are, like Solzhenitsyn, uh, was able to speak out because no one could actually touch him. Um, but most people accepted. In the town of Veronesh, which is in what is called the Black Earth country of Russia, I uh, was filming there and we were, because I was very, very interested in the whole of the collective experience in villages where there was a very great deal of, of, of poverty, where people had no running water, where there wasn't any gas supply in the country that exports huge quantities of gas to uh, Western Europe and, and, and elsewhere. And in the evening, one evening, I met an extremely nice young woman who leant across to where I was sitting and spoke perfect English. Because I'd seen on the websites on, on Russia, you constantly see th uh, advertisements for a girl wants to read English man or American man, usually. Um, I thought maybe that, that, that she was searching for a, a husband, and I wasn't available. And, but I did my best, although she was extremely attractive, to be very formal indeed. Anyway, I soon discovered that she wasn't in search of that. And she talked to me over, over a meal. And she talked about her father, who was a photographer. And she said, he's very ill and he's out of work. And he has a tiny pension, no social security. And then he, he told that my mother, she said, is very ill as well. Um, I can't leave Varanesh, therefore, for more than a few days. As it happened, she had just returned from Moscow and was shocked by what she had seen. It is unbelievable how rich people are there. How is it that they can spend so much on just one meal, and yet they do nothing for the poor in the villages who are hungry and have nothing? It was the first time I had heard anything like that in Russia. Not self-regarding resentment at inequity, but moral injustice at the outrage of it, because most Russians are extraordinarily accepting. I asked if she thought things would improve. I'm very worried. I have no hope, she said. This is a woman of about 30. No optimism. I think many people are going to suffer. And what about Putin? This was a question I asked again and again. Things have got a bit better since he came in. He made other countries respect Russia. Until he took charge, people thought that Russia was just a country of drunks. Now there is respect for us. And then I asked about democracy, which I did again and again as well. Democracy, she said, is not right for Russia. If we don't, we don't need it. If we had it in the European way, it would not work. We need strength. I concluded it was useless for me to bang on, suggesting that she was only free to say what she wanted, as indeed she was, because she was powerless, because there was no democratic structure within which her voice and those of the millions of fathers, mothers, sons and daughters across Russia who may hold similar views can ever be reflected in the parliament or on radio or on television. Useless for me to say that she could be ignored in a state where the media that matter was obedient to the Kremlin and therefore filtered out all opposing views. And I came across this uh, again and again and again. And I explore in the book the background to that, the sense of security in Stalin's era, and Stalin is a hero to many Russians still, the sense of deep insecurity with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Yeltsin years, which from my perspective were with a degree of irresponsibility I find it almost difficult to uh, begin to comprehend, were talked up as wonderful years of liberation in the West. 
They were, if you're after short-term gains in a country that was totally anarchic and run by the mafia, if you didn't care about the loss of social security, if you didn't care about the rate of inflation, if you didn't care about mass unemployment, if you didn't care that people now had to pay to send their children to school, pay to get health care, if you didn't care about those things, then the Yeltsin years were great, but they weren't democratic. Yeltsin turned his guns on the Duma, the parliament, when they objected to him. He rigged the election in 1996, which brought him into power. And all the way through, on this side of the Atlantic, of, uh, sorry, on this side of, of Europe, um, we, and across the Atlantic, we rejoiced in what Yeltsin was doing. Yeltsin was responsible for Putin. And Putin is not good news. And I explore some of those things. I went on south, down to the Caucasus, to the Black Sea, and went from the Black Sea across to the Caspian, passing through territory which Lermontov uh, made famous with his um, poems and his one novel. Um, I, I have no time here, but in the book I seek to explore uh, the turmoil of that history back into the 19th century and the great struggles about which Tolstoy and others wrote. Incidentally, the best book on the Caucasus, I, I think I ought to be on 10% of the sales. Um, it's written by Tolstoy, so his estate would benefit. And I met his great-great-great-grandson at the house where he, where he now works as the uh, proprietor of the, of the estate, um, where Tolstoy was born and wrote all his great novels, um, Yasnaya Pollyanna. Um, uh, it's called Haji Murat. I have it in my mind because I kept making notes. H-A-D-J-I-M-U-R-A-T. It's that long. Buy it. Ian Wilson, who wrote a very good biography uh, of Tolstoy, when I said to him, I've just read Haji Murat. And, and it was like sort of you meet two people who, who suddenly realize that they understand the same things. It's wonderful, isn't it? You don't have to read War and Peace. <laughs> anyway, I love the countryside. And I was very interested in what was happening outside. And Russia has great wildernesses as well huge wildernesses, and one of them is in the Caucasus. And I was driving up one day to Mount Elbrus, um, the highest mountain in Europe, higher than Mont Blanc. Um, as we climbed towards the higher peaks, we passed herdsmen bringing their animals down to the shelter of autumn pastures. We were also moving against the flow of a succession of elderly trucks and puffing tractors, pulling antiquated trailers, all alarmingly overloaded, hauling stacks of hay mown on the high meadows to feed the livestock in winter. At one point, I asked my driver to stop so that I could breathe in the air and the view, a milky blue-green landscape in the haze, hanging valleys and great ravines. An eagle, circling intently above us, searching for prey, allowed itself to be carried up in the eddies of warm air, pirouetting towards the heavens. A herd of cows wandered by, driven by a herdsman, on a fine black horse, a big man, wrapped in a leather jerkin and wearing a turban. He had a face coarsened by weather, and his eyes were half buried in the creases of his skin. He had black hair, thick moustache, and broken teeth. On a whim, I stopped him, actually kind of jumped out of the, of the car and, and said, can I ride your horse? I knew that it was a Cabardine Stallion, which is why I wanted to ride it, which is a famous long-distance horse. Without a moment's demure, he dismounted and gave me a leg up. I felt that surge of delight that wide open spaces, fresh air and a good horse invariably provoke. Within a few moments, I was galloping away from the road, away from the herdsman, away from his cattle, up higher and higher, it seemed, the wind whipping at my face, the horse's long mane flying. 
It was a moment of intense exhilaration. I knew what it was to be on top of the world. After a while, I stopped and stared about me. I could see for miles in every direction. There was not one building, not one other person, only the sigh of the wind and my horse's heaving breath. I sat there motionless, watching and listening, momentarily at peace with the natural world. When I rode back down the road to the herdsman, he was still there, perfectly at ease, although his cattle were out of sight. He nodded as I returned his horse, as if a foreigner wanting a ride were an everyday occurrence. <laughs> then, slinging himself aboard, he gave a roar of encouragement to the horse and galloped off after his meandering herd. He was soon a distant figure, shrouded in the mountain mist and the mountains. And They say you should never work with children or animals, to which one has to add birds. He's trying to be a, an eagle. Um, I went to a wedding in the Caucasus, which was intense joy and delight, and I had to dance, which is very embarrassing. But I learnt in all the places I went in the Caucasus about the tensions between the people of the Caucasus, North and South, and Russia. Um, many people in the North Caucasus who are Caucasian, regard the Russians as occupiers, colonial occupiers. Conversely, and this goes back a long way into imperial history, um, many Russians tend to talk about the people of the Caucasus as in the deep south of America, white Americans used to talk about black Americans. And they use the word black in the same way as the deep south used to use the term nigger. And it's very disconcerting to experience that. Um, and I learnt quite a lot and write at some length about the cauldron of the Caucasus before, of course, um, although I do, in fact, in certain passages say that it, Georgia could very easily fall uh, victim to the tensions that there are in that uh, region. I went to North Ossetia, which is where you saw Putin the other day arriving um, to take charge, not to take charge, to continue being in charge. He's always been in charge. I'd, before Medvedev came to power, it was clear to quite a lot of people, and I picked this up, that uh, he was not going to be in power. Um, he was going to be in position. Uh, the power has always resided and will continue to reside with Putin. Um, but I went there because of another Caucasian tragedy to Beslan, and I went into the school, the gymnasium at Beslan, um, which was, uh, I prepared myself for it, but I hadn't prepared myself for the, the extraordinary distress. I knew I had to go in the way that you have to go and see the Museum of the Holocaust in Jerusalem. You can't avoid it. I couldn't have gone that journey and kind of avoided it as I half wanted to do. But I was overwhelmed by the photographs of the, the little children on the walls of the ruined gymnasium, 186 children who, who perished. Afterwards, I came out and a woman walked up to me, wearing a purple dress to her ankles. She was thin and worn, her face still beautiful but prematurely aged. She had a grubby package under her arm that at her behest I unwrapped. Inside there was a photo, grimy from constant handling. It was of a barely recognisable corpse, the charred body of a child, her child. I look at this every day, she said. My life has stopped. They tell me lies, I want the truth. What truth? Whose truth? Why had her child died? Whose weapon? Whose decision? What madness? 
I knew what she meant, and I also knew that she will never know, that she will never be told, and that this implacable fact will torment her to her grave. Her sorrow was terrible to witness. I stroked her arm, wanting to hug her frail, small body to mine, but fearing that this would be an intrusion that her culture could not bear. But even my modest gesture of sympathy was enough to cause the tears to course down her cheeks. She turned away, inconsolable, shaking her head, demented with grief. She needed care and counselling. But when I asked the survivors of the massacre could, whether the survivors of the massacre could access such support, a sympathetic official shrugged. The answer, of course, was no. In the cemetery on the outskirts of Beslan, there's a section for the children who died in the massacre. Six long rows of identical red and black marble graves, but made touchingly personal, both by the haunting photographs of the victims, engraved formally on each headstone, and by a favourite toy placed reverentially at the base of every one, a grey-green Maserati, a teddy bear, a plastic Batman without Robin, a crashed rubber football, a once-loved hairless doll. I watched a young woman tending the fresh flowers laid on her son's grave. She wept as she worked, distractedly, as if unable to leave the spot. The boy's name was Boris Gurieva. When she finally wandered away, I read the inscription under the photo of You were the man in our house, a support for the family. Forgive us that we did not protect you. Sorry. And then another girl named Vera. You were a light for us. Our light has disappeared. The world around us is in darkness. Russia is filled with torment. It's filled with extremes. It's filled with quite astonishingly resilient people, people that are immensely welcoming once you break through the, uh, the, the carapace, which is often quite aggressive and quite cold and rather uh, intimidating. Um, you have to consume quite a lot of vodka to do it. Um, you can see how large I am. Well, um, uh, not very is the answer, but therefore I had to consume at least twice my body weight in vodka to uh, engage in a way which got through that surface hostility. And I came to make, meet, meet, make some very good friends. I mentioned that Stalin was popular. In Volgograd, um, which was Stalingrad, um, he is regarded as a great hero. And we now know that Putin also regards, having regarded Peter the Great as his hero, Stalin regarded Ivan the Terrible as his hero. Putin has moved on from Peter the Great um, uh, to embrace Stalin as well, who, as Simon Sebag Montefiore said very uh, persuasively this morning, um, Stalin is becoming just like another czar in the psyche of the Russian people. What he didn't add is that, that Putin has decided that history should be positive. An injunction has gone out to all schools. There's been nothing of the... Uh, um, peace and reconciliation that you've had in, in South Africa. So the past is either a country that no one knows about if they're young, or people are in denial about the truth of what happened in the, those days. I went on, and I have to move on swiftly now, as it were, um, through to uh, Siberia, which is now, which is 5,000 miles worth of the journey more than, I think, 6,000 miles. And I traveled these long, long routes. I got on and off the Siberian train. I went by river. I went by road. Um, and um, uh, discovering in the process what I'd read on paper, that Russia is really now um, 
kept going by Siberia. The exact, it used to be the place of exile. Now the heart of Russia, economically, is Siberia. It's Siberia that has most of the gas, most of the oil, the minerals, the emeralds, the gold, uh, the iron ore which is exported across uh, the border to China. And that sense of Siberia merely being a remote and cold place, minus 50, minus 60 in some parts in the winter, and plus 30, plus 40 in other parts um, during the summer, is actually a place which reverberates with economic energy. I experienced also the great beauty of Siberia. I came to like the long journeys, traveling um, from Irkutsk along the edge of Lake Baikal, which is one of the great wonders of the world, um, in th through the mountains, through down to the Altai Mountains, um, where I met people who were extremely sophisticated, very well educated as herders, who are animists, who believe, when I kicked inadvertently, I, this little episode was in, the, in, the, in one of the films, I, there was a, we were sitting in a, in, a, in, the, in a yurt, and the smoke from the fire in the middle was going up through um, a hole in the, in the roof of the yurt. We were sitting around in a circle drinking tea, and I, I saw a log was a bit loose, so I kicked the log, and there was a sudden silence. And then I was very politely rebuked, saying that I'd shown disrespect to the fire. And then they elaborated and said, well, what we mean is the fire is sacred, the mountain is sacred, the sky is sacred. I said, do you worship? And I got into that kind of conversation with people, which was really interesting. Do you worship those? Yes, we worship. I said, how do you worship? Every day, wherever we go, we are worshipping the natural world. You, said one of them, you British, you travel the world, you have your wars. You have Iraq. We live in the Altai. And we know there's nowhere else you need to be because Altai is the centre of the world. And to meet people like that was really quite um, extraordinary and very encouraging that there is some diversity in what had been such a monochrome state for so long. And I, as I journeyed, I, 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 I tried... Because some of the journeys you can get quite drowsy on. And sometimes I got quite homesick. But I used to try and concentrate on little moments to ward off the drowsiness. Stranging, a man huddled on the verge with his back to the road, a bucket of carrots by his side, in the middle of nowhere, apparently. A middle-of-nowhere roadside stall where a peasant couple waited to sell pine nuts, berries, honey and birch twigs for the banya, the bathhouse. An army truck in front of us filled with pinch-faced, disconsolate constructs that lurched and bounced on the pitted asphalt. An allotment in a village where a small child was helping a bowed old man, his grandfather, to carry cabbages across the rough ground of an allotment. A couple skinning a dead sheep at the roadside. I wondered what had brought them to this otherworldly Siberia. They seemed to have drifted into the frame by chance, accidental inhabitants of nowhere in particular, eking out an existence on the margins of the money economy. As we drove further south, the landscape became balmier. I saw sunflowers, their blackened heads drooping as they awaited the harvest. A herd of Frisian cows, black and white dots on an oasis of greensward, meandered around bales of straw and traditional stooks of hay. A peasant woman on a sit-up-and-beg bicycle steered a cow and her calf along a track towards the horizon, presumably heading towards an unseen homestead, a universal symbol of patience and endurance. Some of my best encounters were on trains, because you have a lot of time on trains and people drink a great deal on trains. And um, one of them, I met several people on, on, in one particular journey, and I, I, a very drunk young uh, soldier came up to me 
um, one of the uh, handful of recruits that I'd seen at the station at a city at a town called Cheetah. Um, he allowed himself to be uh, so carried away with alcohol um, that he re removed his shirt, exposing a narrow pinched chest that he would have done well to conceal. Uh, they bantered each other um, until one of them was prompted to come over to where I was sitting. He stopped and smiled, leaning benignly over the swaying table as he tried to reorder his lips to form the words that might express some of the thoughts or feelings that lurked somewhere within, but refused to emerge from the recesses of his sodden brain. He had a livid scar down his left cheek, which had been so crudely stitched that the tissue had bubbled up in places, exacerbating the ugliness. Across the compartment, another party, this time of older men, was equally close to disintegration. One of them, sensing that I was beginning to feel both over and underwhelmed by the attentions of my would-be soulmate, the soldier, lurched across and told the young man to leave me alone. He then introduced himself by pulling an ID card from an inside pocket. I am a police officer from Irkutsk, he announced, showing me his insignia of office to prove the point. In broken, slurred English, he managed to convey the fact that he was on his way to Vladivostok to buy a car that he would drive the 2,000-mile journey back home. Nissan, no good. Toyota, no good, he volunteered. Mitsubishi, good. It transpired that he was going to buy a 4x4 and that almost every person in the compartment was similarly bound for the huge second-hand car market in Vladivostok to buy Japanese cars, either for themselves or to sell again at a small profit in central and western Siberia, where the appetite for these vehicles is insatiable. The train manager told me that many of his passengers were regular commuters, earning their livelihoods by making this punishing 4,000 or even 6,000 mile round trip week after week, month after month. It must be very boring for them, I suggested. Yes, it is, of course, but they just drink themselves into a stupor. Trade Vladivostok, they then sober up so they can buy a car and drive back to where they came from. <laughs> it's a job. And actually, behind that story, there is the extraordinary ability of ordinary Russian people, despite the system, despite everything, despite the lack of things, to flourish and survive in very difficult circumstances. I have not touched on foreign affairs, but could if you wanted to. Um, by the time I got to Vladivostok, 10,000 miles, I had met a huge number of people, and I enjoyed that. But I didn't return optimistic. I hoped, though, with a better and more realistic understanding of the Russia with which we all have to live. And this is just one brief final passage that I'm going to read. Um, No, I'm not. I'm going to leave that, because you'd be much too kind to me, Sheena. You didn't shut me up. I will just say the last thing. In the future, whenever I feel that surge of impotent resentment at the excesses of the Kremlin, I shall have as a wonderful counterweight my greater understanding of the Russian people, those many individuals who've welcomed me into their lives and for whom I now feel lasting affection and respect. I've been blessed by the experience. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that was a masterly encapsulation of what is a, an excellent book and a very big book, and which John will be signing afterwards in the signing tent. Can we have the lights up? Because I think, given that we haven't got that much time left, uh, rather than exercise chairman's privilege, I'm going to open it because there'll be so many questions. Where are the roving mics? Ooh, oh, one there and one there. Great. Well, let's start over there. 
and I'll take three questions at a time. No, no one over there. Okay, over here. Yes, gentleman there, and one in the middle, and one up there. Jonathan, if you were asked to organize the annual convention for the Electoral Fraudsters Association, which of the three would be your keynote speaker? Would it be George W. Bush, Robert Mugabe, or Vladimir Putin? <laughs> While the mic is coming back, you can answer that, because that's a quickie. I'd be hard-picked to choose. <laughs> if I was taking the long view, I'd say Putin. Yes. Good evening, Mr. Dimbleby. Good evening. Um, could, could you tell us where Mikhail Gorbachev actually stands within the context of things today in Russia? Gorb Should I, take I can the give you a quote on that. I've got it with me if you want. I write about Gorbachev in the meeting, which happened coincided with Thatcher's visit to Moscow in 1989, September. Um, he is uh, not... Uh, regarded in Russia as anything other than the man who destroyed the Soviet Union, surrendered the Soviet Union. I believe he's one of the great men of the 20th century. I felt it before I met him. I felt that the introduction of uh, the perestroika and the economic restructuring that he began was a process that would develop inevitably towards openness, transparency, and an ability for Russia to uh, play its proper role in a global market economy. Um, that he surrendered from the Russian perspective, uh, the Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, was an act of great statesmanship. It would have been uh, the act of uh, ordinary statesmanship to have said, we're going to hold on to this come what may. He liberated Eastern Europe, and as a consequence, we were spared, I think, a terrible conflagration in Europe and conceivably more widely. And I think he was one of the great men, but he is, like so many great men, it will take a long time before the Russians recognize that. And this is the Times, uh, Edinburgh International Book Festival, so I shouldn't really quote from The Guardian. Uh, but in The Guardian today, Mikhail Gorbachev says that while nothing can justify the loss and destruction of lives in South Ossetia, Russia had no choice but to respond. Who's got the mic? Yes. Mr. Dimbleby, you visited a gold mine on your journeys in Siberia. I wondered if you could just comment a little bit on industrial relations, because BP's had a very difficult time of late in Russia. I wondered how, I think it was Mr. Hall, can run in partnership his gold mine, apparently happily, whereas BP, and I know it's obviously a much, much bigger enterprise, is having serious difficulties with its relations in Russia. There are two things. I actually went to the, to the uh, Summit Law uh, oil field, which is the TNK BP quotes partnership, as well as to the uh, to the gold mine. Um, the issue there, uh, BP TK, uh, TNK BP, in industrial relations term, terms, run, and I'd be the first to be looking closely at it from a rather critical standpoint. Run a very fair, good operation. It is nothing to do with industrial relations, what's happening there. It's all to do with the control of the, of the national, of the national uh, resource and uh, what is happening, in my view. And I actually, long before all this erupted, um, I, I describe what I 
what seemed on the ground to be happening and actually asked someone there, you know, how long is it going to be before TNKBP becomes TNKBP Rosnet or whichever the, the Russian... And, and they said, that's a political question. The writing was on the wall then, and, it, and the writing will be on the wall, and, and they will, uh, Russia, Putin is determined to recover the enterprises that were uh, effectively given away originally for the Russian state. They didn't share it out. The kleptocrats, to go back to my friend, share it out between them. They sell, the, the state sells cheap to the, to the oligarchs, and the oligarchs then sell back cheap to the state. It's a nice deal. Everyone is on all sides of that equation. In the case of, of gold, again, the industrial relations there were absolutely fantastic. And the, I, 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 I always find it difficult to understand how businessmen, however genial and nice and, and good, and I know they have to do it, are able to which I, as a journalist, have the, 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 the good fortune not to have to do, of turn so many blind eyes to things that are so dreadful. And say, as the owner of the mine said, who's an incredibly nice guy and who I liked and, and still like, said, look, I do business here. It's not my, not my business to judge what happens in politics. Well, you know, that's a, that's a big issue for discussion. Uh, can you just put your hands up so the roving mic can see where they were going up? Yes, yes. Jonathan. In your role as Vice President of the Soil Association, and this is a Russian question, <laughs> do you think that Prince Charles's outspoken comments on GM foods today might in any way be heard in Russia? Could you make that a Russian answer? I'll make really that a Russian it, answer. Yeah. I'll only make it a Russian yeah. answer, although I know very well the provenance of the question. Um, I don't think that the issue of GM uh, from the standpoint that uh, Prince of Wales uh, speaks has much salience in, in Russia. The real problem of Russian agriculture, which has fantastic potential, is it's been run into the, into the earth. Um, and the, however it is used, whether it is used for mechanized industrial farming or as I would much prefer uh, to see it on uh, sustainable grounds. And incidentally, just in parenthesis, this very interesting stuff from the UN today about the non-sustainable uh, agriculture and the effect that the dramatically increased cost of fertilizers, which are oil-based, is having on the poor farmers of the world, not excluding Russian poor farmers. I, I, I don't think he um, will be heard particularly loudly for that. He will be heard in a Russia that reveres again, amongst many people, revere monarchies, and they like him. Yes, and I'll, t I'll take two now. Thank you for a wonderful talk, wonderful presentation. Can I ask, um, I was in Russia two years ago and it was very obvious that the uh, orthodox religion is resurgent after the many years of oppression and suppression. Does the orthodox church, the orthodox religion, or indeed any other religion across the East, the Muslim religion, have any part to play in this future of a Russia that you've painted as being undemocratic, uh, in, in unequal, and, and so on. Has the religion got any part, or is it just tokenism? The answer is, is yes. I mean, I, I'm, I'm with, I, I, I try to be an optimist, otherwise you kind of give up the ghost. And I, I hope that the backward trend politically of, of, of Russia will in due course in what is called sovereign democracy. It's one of those sort of could have been made up by a Downing Street spin doctor. Um, a, a sovereign democracy uh, will uh, emerge at some future point as a, as a genuine emerging democracy. But the role of the church has been malign, as Solzhenitsyn was the first to point out. 
the church suborned itself to the czars, it suborned itself to uh, the Soviet period, and now it has allied itself to the quite extraordinary degree to this autocratic state. And, uh, uh, for instance, the patriarch advised in what might be considered the equivalent of a papal nuncio, it wasn't quite as potent as that, advised uh, the faithful to vote for Putin in the elections um, for president, uh, sorry, the parliamentary elections for Putin as prime minister. Um, and the church is the fountain of the resurgent nationalism for many people. That nationalism shades very easily and dangerously into xenophobia. The thing that I touched on what I was speaking about, um, there is no doubt that, that, the, that the church will uh, endorse unequivocally, which you would not find, of course, in the, the, the Church of England in relation to, say, Iraq or indeed any other uh, international uh, interventions, um, will endorse unequivocally the Russian intervention in uh, Georgia, I have no doubt. I happen to think that, that Gorbachev isn't quite right, but the, the absurdity of the uh, Georgian president in uh, taking his penknife and poking the backside of the Russian bear uh, is inexcusable and caused terrible mayhem and suffering. And I don't think we have heard adequately yet, partly it is very difficult to get it, the full story of the degree to which the, uh, uh, the South Ossetians were uh, gunned down uh, by the Georgian army, which does not excuse the excesses of the Russian armed forces. It was an excuse for Putin, and it was likely to happen whatever the car cause was, the casus belli was. Uh, but uh, the church and the overwhelming population of Russia will be behind this attempt to say, you don't mess with us. And, and just in parenthesis, I'd say that, that they do, everyone, however liberal you are in Russia, you do view NATO, which you simply see as America's arm, as a threat, a surrounding threat. It's very basic. You've got the, uh, the radar in Czechoslovakia, you've got the promise of anti-ballistic -miss, anti missile missiles a very short distance from the Russian border, allegedly to protect the world from a threat from Iran. It just doesn't go down in Russia. They don't believe it. The most democratic Russians, people in every other, in every other area would agree with my sort of view of broad view of the world, and I guess most of our views of the world, without wishing to prejudge yours, um, um, say, well, of course, of course NATO's there to threaten us. They want to engulf us. That's what the Americans want to do. And that's a pretty scary environment, which has got a lot worse from the West's point of view, because the West actually can't do anything about it. And there should have been talks, and the president of Georgia has a great deal to answer for. So when late this afternoon George Bush said that uh, America will send humanitarian aid to Georgia, do you interpret that as an escalation of, you talk about the, uh, the collision course with the West? Um, I, I don't believe that it's an escalation in, in the sense in which you may, may think. I don't believe there's any likelihood whatsoever of military conflict and Russia. And, and that's for, for, for two reasons. One is, um, everyone recognises it would be catastrophic. Secondly, NATO is so fantastically more powerful than the Russian forces, which for all the rhetoric are hugely depleted. There is no 
people have written about There's a very good book, which is called The New Cold War. It's an excellent book in its analysis, but it's a really daft... Edward, it's a really daft title. Because, By Edward Lucas. Yes, Edward Lucas. I, 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 I want to sort of apologise for saying it's a daft title because it's a good, good title for someone to buy a book. But there is not a new Cold War. The Cold War was a very different global environment from the one we now live in. Sir. Well, thank you, Jonathan, that presentation. It's first class. Uh, my question, it must have been seven or eight years ago, you were here in this tent talking about your book, The Last Governor, Chris Patton, Hong Kong. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you said you made the Heathrow-Hong Kong return trip 13 times. Uh, if yeah, yeah, what a good memory. It was rather, yeah. I think it was a few more, but it was jolly, it, was, it, now, it felt like 130 times. Yeah, well, given what you've said about the sheer size of Siberia, Alaska, US, Europe put together, does the travel you did there begin to compare with the Hong Kong trips? Well, the Hong Kong trips are all on a plane. Um, and I hate flying. Um, I, I'm, I'm one of those cowards about flying, so I have to, unless I've got to do something immediately at the other end, like do an interview, I, I, I generally, uh, at eight o'clock, can be seen, if I'm lucky and someone else is paying for it in the business lounge, drinking something that looks like tonic water, um, but has actually got mostly vodka in it to s secure myself. So I much more enjoyed, incidentally, the Russian journeys to the, pla to the plane journeys, but the, and it was much more difficult. I mean, it was rougher, tougher travel. Um, and uh, it, I felt that I'd been on much more of a journey. And I, put, I said, you know, I put, I, I feel I've put my sort of life up to now in, 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 in this experience in all sorts of ways because um, it was testing. And I kind of surmounted, I, for myself, I felt I surmounted the, uh, the, the hurdles and feel much better for it. Would I do that journey again? Uh. You've got a baby now. Yes, one of the reasons about these journeys, you see, I hate, I hate, um, going away. I spent my whole life going away from home. And I've now, I'm, I'm, I'm now I've got a, a, a one-year and one-month-old baby who was conceived during this process and born during this process, which is a long process of making this, this, this film. And it got more and more difficult to, to leave her. Now that she can say so well, Daddy, Daddy. I mean, how can I go away from home again? Sir. Uh, uh, Jonathan, I'm, I'm fascinated by this notion of a vast country with a pretty large population, but also a huge ethnic diversity in terms of languages and different peoples and cultures and religions, and yet your programs seem to... ...question that you touch on. Um, the, the, the fact is there's much more homogeneity than perhaps I have uh, explained by wanting to draw out some of the diversity. The ethnic diversity is not so great. Um, what binds Russia, uh, there are areas where there is diversity, the Caucasus being the principal uh, uh, example. Um, there are in the Caucasus many different languages, but everyone speaks Russian, one common language. Russians have themselves colonized the land that is now Siberia. So there is a, a sense of Russia across the whole of Russia and Siberia, and there are small enclaves of, of ethnic diversity. Religion wasn't actually confined. Animist faith, belief in uh, the white witch, belief in the wood spirits was not confined to particular geographical areas traditionally. The source of Russianness at the end, I think, has, as m has not only to do with that colonizing of that territory, but the history of a country which was uh, created by the Vikings, effectively, um, that was invaded and humiliated with long memories still referring to this by the Mongols, 
by Genghis Khan and his followers, and then was threatened by Napoleon, who reached Moscow, and then again threatened by uh, Hitler, and very nearly lost. Today, or since then, the Cold War, the, the sense of the other, the adversary, the enemy, is a huge binding force for people who believe that they, their territory is common and shared amongst them. And there isn't a great deal of internal uh, conflict between the groups. Much more powerful is the sense of, this is our motherland, Russia. And how does it compare with America? Well, it's, uh, America is much, much more diverse in, in this sense. The languages, the cultures, uh, the races, and, and it's much more uh, polyglot and much less monochrome. Of course, as now in Russia, um, the market economy means that you, that you go from town to town, city to city in Russia as in America, and you've got the same international uh, shops that you see everywhere from you know, Sainsbury's to Mothercare. This is what happens. If we overrun, people start leaving. So, and finally, soundbite question. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, you've touched on it a couple of times regarding uh, conflict between various nations. Us in the West refer and think very much about the Iron Curtain, NATO versus the Great Bear, but there's been a huge, a long history of skirmishes across, you mentioned recently, um, in, in the Far East, and China has had many skirmishes across the borders. Um, with their growing uh, capitalism, massive growth in capitalism there, do the Russians feel there's a potential conflict or you took these people getting the train out to bloody Vostok, little entrepreneurial range of activity there, is there going to be a growth of thought, well, we can actually make some money out of this and there'll be a sweeping of capitalism coming from the far side? Uh, the, the, it's, it's the latter. There's, there's raw capitalism in Russia and raw materials in Russia. There's advancing capitalism in China. And the two are the major combined partnership that I think the world is going to face um, in the coming decades. There is a very increasingly good relationship. They have joint military exercises in the 70s when China was, was claiming parts of Siberia and there was a very, during the Maoist period, a very deep conflict. That's completely disappeared. There is a rapprochement diplomatically. It's evidenced by people going shopping backwards and forwards across the river Amur, for instance. Um, there is a sense that we don't like too many of the Chinese being here because there's so many more of them. Someone touched earlier on the, the population. I mean, Russia is a, not a big population. It's smaller than it was, and it's, um, it's falling. It's, uh, it's, it's 145 million and is destined to fall over the next 30, 40 years to 120 million, which actually, for a country, and these are a lot of the factors that make big, a big question mark over whether or not Russia, as it is, can be a competitive economy with a falling population when its growth at the moment is around uh, seven, eight, nine percent growth. It's all coming out of the ground. It's not, there's no value, out, very little value added in the, in the economy. However, um, I, Russia is supplying massive raw materials to China, wood, iron ore. Russia, uh, China consumes 80% of the world's iron ore for steel. Russia produces the majority of that straight across to China. A lot of goods come in from China into Russia, so there is a, a, a growing and increasingly important relationship. Um, that story is not over. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much to RBS for sponsoring. Before we gallop off to the signing tent, uh, can I ask a final question? Your brother, in his um, series about the buildings of Britain, appeared in his swimsuit. In your series, you, pay, you appeared um, bare-ass naked. Where will this end? <laughs>
My brother's got to be front to camera next. Right. <laughs> <laughs> On which note?